this morning. I want to take a moment before we dismiss our children for kids crew today just to say happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. It is Father's Day today and we want to celebrate you today and celebrate your impact, your influence in our lives, dads. So thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for all that you've done. You know, Father's Day is a great day to celebrate. It's a great day to get together with family, have a good time, to in, in, enjoy time with, with friends and loved ones. But for some, Father's Day can be hard too. Perhaps today is the first Father's Day since you lost your dad. Or maybe the fact that it's Father's Day again is just a reminder of a, a difficult, a fractured relationship that you may have had with your earthly father. And even that, we recognize that those are all things that, that are going on and that we bring all of that into the mix today. And, uh, you know, it, anything that we, that, we, that we struggle with in that sense, any of those tensions that we feel are just a reminder to us that on this side of heaven, that things aren't right. But here's the really good news. We have a heavenly father who loves us, who gave us earthly dads so that we can learn about his love for us. And sometimes earthly dads do it really well. And sometimes earthly dads struggle with that because we're fallen and we're sinners. But even in that, it's a reminder that we have a perfect heavenly father who will never let us down, who will never run short on his uh, his, his commitments to us and even his perfect love for us. And so today we celebrate our dads and we look ultimately to our heavenly father, the perfect father, and we thank him for all that he's done in our lives as well. So why don't we take a minute and let's just celebrate. Let's, let's say thanks to our dads this morning. It's a little bit self-serving because I'm a dad too. And so uh, I'm clapping for myself, but I'm not clapping for me. I'm clapping for all of the other dads in the room. All right, well, we're gonna take a moment now to dismiss our kids for kids crew. I'm gonna share a little something with you, a little insider secret, uh, okay? While the kids are headed upstairs to be part of kids crew this morning, when I baptize, I wear waders. I wear like fishing waders, like what you see people wear when they fish. And sometimes I roll, I always roll my sleeve up. And sometimes if I'm not just right, then uh, I'll end up getting wet. The whole point of the waders is quick change, right? That I can get in, I can get out and it's quick. But this week, do you see, you can't tell as much because it's kind of drying my light blue shirt. This whole arm is soaked. And, and I've got, it looks like I've got a big sweat stain on this side as well. Because when I, when I, I dunked them this morning, I, I dipped a little too far and, and got myself wet. So I'm standing here half wet. But you know what? I would be soaked to the bone if that's what it meant to celebrate baptism week after week. I would gladly stand here and just uh, ring water all over this stage because it never gets old celebrating what God has done in the lives of those who've trusted Christ. We're excited for the, the commitments that were made public today through baptism and excited for more that we'll share with you in the coming weeks as we continue to roll through summer and God is doing some great things in our midst. And all of that leads me to this point that this morning we have a, a big crew with us who are a part of Canica Camp Out. And so I just want to recognize them. They're around the room this morning. So kind of wave at us if you're with Camp Out. There's a bunch of them in the balcony this morning. And so uh, we're excited for Camp Out starts tomorrow. Actually, in a lot of ways, Camp Out starts today because setup starts today. But then Camp Out with kids show up tomorrow and it's going to be a great week of Canica Camp Out. And we're excited for their investment in the lives of our kids this week. 
We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. We're working our way through the scripture this year, reading the Bible together, a Bible reading plan that you can find on our website, by the way, if you're wanting to jump in with that. Go to the page where our sermons live on our website, and there you'll find a link as well as an archive of past sermons and messages and things related to redemption story. And that's what we're doing is we're finding the story of redemption that is told from the beginning to the end of scripture. And see, even though the Bible is 66 different books from Genesis to Revelation, it's telling one story of God's love for us and his plan to redeem us from our sin. And so we're reading through the Bible together and we're working our way through the text each week, picking a different passage from that week's reading to study and dig in a little bit more deeply on. And today we're in Psalm 51. Now you will probably recognize immediately the language in Psalm 51 when I begin to read it in just a moment, but you may not be familiar with the backstory. And so let me just kind of bring us up to speed briefly on the backstory of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a a psalm, which is a song, we could say, that David wrote after he was caught in his sin, the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba. And so we know that a year, more than a year has gone by that David, that David hid his sin, essentially, that he kept it secret. He kept it private, what he had done, the way that he had not only sinned with Bathsheba, but then also sinned by conspiring to have her husband, Uriah, murdered, and all of these deep and really grievous things that David was a part of. And so he was confronted by all of this by the prophet. He was confronted by Samuel, the prophet, who comes to him and basically says, he tells David a story. Well, what if this certain thing happened? What if there was a man and he had two lambs and or he had a lamb, but and, and a rich man came to him and wanted his. And, and so he's telling the story. Samuel's telling the story. And David becomes enraged with the story that Samuel is telling him. And as the king, he thinks, I've got the power to do something about this. And so he says, who, tell me where this man is so that we may deal with him. And Samuel says, oh, but David, you are this man. You are the man. The whole point of the story that Samuel was sharing with David was so that David would come to understand that it was his sin that Samuel was speaking about. And he became broken. He confessed his sin. He was caught in his sin, but he confessed it. And he sought repentance. And and in brokenness, he came before the Lord. And one of the things that he did in response to being confronted over his sin was he penned Psalm 51. And so as we read together from Psalm 51, and, and we know some of these important details, even by just the simple heading that is probably included in your Bible, because just before Psalm 51, 1, we read this, that to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan, I said it was Samuel, excuse me, it was Nathan, tripping over my words here. Uh, it was in 1 Samuel is where we read, or actually in 2 Samuel where we read about that, but it was Uh, It was Nathan the prophet who confronted him. So let me correct that. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so Nathan confronts David over these sins. David, caught in his sin, confesses it and is now seeking to make things right with the Lord. And part of that is the acknowledgement of that sin expressed through Psalm 51. Let's read this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you would not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David has written this song, which in so many ways shares his response, his brokenness over his sin. And in fact, there are three kind of key elements that we see in this, this psalm that I think are important. Now, these aren't the main points that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna point us to this morning in, in our study. We're really gonna key in on verse 12 together in just a minute. But in general, as we work our way through this psalm, there are three key things. The first thing that we see is that there is confession. That the whole point of Psalm 51 is David is confessing his sin. He's confessing his wrongdoing before the Lord. And so there's, this is a psalm of confession. This is a psalm acknowledging his sin, acknowledging his, his guilt, his blood guiltiness, as he even calls it in verse 14. He's acknowledging his wrong, acknowledging his sin. Not only is there confession, there's contrition. He says that a broken heart and a contrite spirit you will not despise. What is contrition? Contrition is just another way that we might say something that is something that is humbled, something that is broken, something that is abased. All of these are ways that we might point to. So the, the idea of contrition, particularly as it relates to sin, is that we acknowledge our sin before the Lord and we're, and, and we're low about it, that there's humility and brokenness over that sin. And then there's the idea here of correction. The idea of correction. Correction meaning that David says, he confesses the sin, he says, I'm, I'm broken over my sin and my desire, Lord, is to correct, is to right what I have done wrong. Now, when I think about all these things put together, I think about the Japanese art of kintsugi. Do you know what kintsugi is? There is this art form that the Japanese use called kintsugi. And the idea of kintsugi is that they will take a piece of pottery and they will, they will break it. Perhaps it's one that they will intentionally break or, or maybe it's one that has been broken. But the idea is that it will be mended using gold. So they will heat up gold and they will use gold as an adhesive of sorts to put together the pottery that has been broken so that they restore it back to its original form. But now the fault lines and the cracks are covered in something precious, covered in gold. And so you have this unique 
this unique piece of art that is something that was once broke, broken and rendered useless because of its, its cracks, its flaws, that now is healed and mended with something valuable and precious. And when I, when I think about that, I think what, what a great depiction of the gospel that is. That our lives, if you will, are the thing that has been broken. Our lives are something that was created by God, formed in his image, made for his purpose. And yet because of our sin, we find ourselves broken, marred with fault lines and, and, and cracks from the things that we have done. And yet God shed his blood on the cross by sending Jesus to the cross. He shed his blood to pay the price. Something valuable, something precious was given in order to mend what was broken so that we can be put back the way that God desires. We can be put back together, if you will. We can be mended, made whole. And now the fault lines, the sins, the cracks, the scars, now they tell the story of something beautiful that God has done in our lives through saving us from our sin. I think that's such a, a powerful picture of the gospel. And, and even this points us to that. What was broken, what was contrite, what was smashed has been put back together, redeemed and restored through the blood of Christ. There's confession, there's contrition, brokenness, and then there's correction. Things are put back the way that they should be. That's the story of the gospel told through the experience from the lens of David in his sin and in his struggle. And this morning, what I want us to do, as I've mentioned already, is I really want us to key in on one verse in particular because I think there's one verse right in the middle of this psalm that, that sort of tells all of this, tells this whole story. So look at verse 12, Psalm 51, verse 12. It's a request that's rooted in hope. David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David recognizes that he has fallen from the place that he should be, that he has fallen from the place where he was trusting in the Lord, where he was believing in God, where he was walking by faith. And his prayer is, oh God, that I may be restored, that I may be restored, that the joy that has been stolen by my sin might be restored unto me as I trust in you. And that's the point that I want us to key in on this morning is the joy of salvation, the joy of God's salvation that is restored to us when we turn to Jesus in faith. Now, David, as he's sharing these words, he doesn't understand the fullness of the gospel in the way that we do. He doesn't understand. He has an idea. He has an inkling of things to come, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, who would be sent to, to, to raise up a holy people. He, he has an awareness of that, but he doesn't fully understand the cross of Christ and those things that would come later. And yet in faith, he's looking toward God's promise. We understand in a much clearer way looking back at all these things that have taken place. And so we see the fulfillment of what David believed in in Psalm 51 perfectly portrayed in the cross of Christ. And this morning, that's what I want us to see. The salvation of God, the very same salvation, the very same forgiveness, the very same restoration that David points to in Psalm 51, that redemption that is available to us through faith in Jesus, through salvation in the one who gave his life, that we may be put back together, restored for God's purpose.
purpose. And so the joy of our salvation is the focus of, of, of our message this morning. So I want us to see five things, okay? On the backside of your sermon uh, guide, your worship guide, when you came in this morning, you received one of those. There are five different points. And I want us to see this, this, uh, this, this contrast, this juxtaposition between sin and between salvation. The sin that we fall into, the salvation that is available through faith in Jesus as we trust in him today. So we're going to contrast our sin versus salvation in Jesus. And the first point that we see is that sin brings bondage. Salvation brings freedom. For a year, for over a year, David lived in this private prison brought about by his sin. He lives in this private prison. We read in Psalm 32, which is another psalm that is connected to this, this time, this season in David's life. We read that, that his heart within him, that his heart dried up, his heart was, 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 became hardened over the sin, the deceptiveness of his sin. He lived in that private prison, which is really what sin does. Sin imprisons us in an invisible cell. It may not be a cell with real bars and, and, uh, and, and, and real chains, but it is a prison nonetheless, that we are in bondage to our sin. I've said so many times before, and I'm going to say it again now. I want you to memorize this, and, and someday you'll use this. I promise you will. I didn't come up with this, by the way. Every time I tell you this, I, I tell you that my pastor used to share this often when I was a boy. But he would say that sin takes us further when we want to go than we want to go. It keeps us longer than we want to stay, and it has a price tag that's higher than we want to pay. And that is so true, and we see that in our lives with the, the effects of sin, and most namely, the bondage, the, the, the imprisonment of sorts, the private prison that we live in because of our sin, that we are imprisoned, imprisoned by guilt, imprisoned by shame, imprisoned by fear, imprisoned by loneliness and isolation and separation from God, all these things that come as a consequence, as an effect of our sin. But praise God, through Jesus, there is salvation. And with Jesus and that salvation comes freedom, comes freedom so that when we trust in Jesus by faith, he releases us from our bondage. It's as if Jesus holds the keys to the prison that we are locked away in. It's as if, if Jesus holds the keys to the chains by which we are handcuffed. And when we trust in him by faith, the chains are released. The prison doors are open. We are set free in him so that salvation brings freedom from our bondage, freedom from the private prison that we live in. But not only that, in a similar sense, we understand that sin brings condemnation. Salvation brings forgiveness. Not only are we set free from our sin, but our sins are forgiven through the work of Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute, because for many of us, who've grown up in the church or we've grown up around the church, you've been a part of Sunday school, you've been a part of church, you're here week in and week out. We become so comfortable with this reality that in many ways we become calloused toward it. And so for a minute this morning, I want to I wanna try, uh, try to rub on your, your, your Christian callous. I, I want to try to get you to think, I want to stir your heart to think about this in a way that perhaps you haven't in some time. That because of your sin, you were condemned. You were deserving of God's wrath. You were deserving of punishment. The punishment in hell. 
separation from God, condemnation, eternal consequence, the, the eternal consequence of your guilt, your shame in punishment for your sin. And yet Jesus took the wrath of God so that you might be forgiven and set free. Think on that truth for a moment. Consider this, this hope that we have, that we can be set free because we can be forgiven in Jesus. Our sins paid for, the past atoned. We can be redeemed for what we've done in spite of what we've done because Jesus offered his life that we might find salvation. Sin brings condemnation. Sin would pour on us. Look at some of the things that, the ways that David would describe his own condemnation, right? The, the language of this psalm. He, he talks about being uh, stained by his sin, his transgression, verse 3, are ever before me. Even just the fact that he's asking in verse 2 to be washed, to be cleansed, is an acknowledgement of his, of his dirtiness, if you will, of his guilt, his condemnation before the Lord. He speaks of being brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. He speaks of the inner, the inner darkness of his sin and the desire to be made clean on the inside. Don't you see the weight of guilt? Don't you see the weight of sin? Let's keep going and we read more about the fact that he feels cut off from the Lord. He talks about being cast away from the presence of God. So there's the acknowledgement that in his sin, he's separated from God. He doesn't have the fellowship, the right relationship with God that he once had. He also speaks about blood guiltiness in verse 14, meaning that he understands. So that there is, there is a true acknowledgement here of the weight, the depth, the overwhelming degree to which he is in bondage to, enslaved to, weighed down by the condemnation of his sin. And yet here's the amazing truth. God willingly offers forgiveness when we turn to him. And just as David receives forgiveness from the Lord and restoration, we can be forgiven and restored through faith in Jesus. Sin brings condemnation. Salvation brings forgiveness. May that simple truth that so many of us are, are aware of, and yet, if we're honest, a little bit, a little bit calloused, a little bit comf too comfortable with, may that truth weigh heavy on our hearts today, that we were condemned in our sins, but we can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. The third thing we see in David's simple psalm of confession here is that sin brings turmoil, but salvation brings peace. Sin brings turmoil. Sin brings with it all kinds of problems, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of, of, of issues. Sin brings with it just the, the uneasiness, the, the, just the, the chaos might be a good word for that, the chaos that, that ensues through sin. Have you, ever, have you ever lied and tried to cover a sin and you only made things worse? Because when you start lying, now you've got to tell another lie to cover a lie and another lie to cover that lie. And it's like before you know it, you've dug a hole for yourself. And it, even though it may have been difficult to face the truth, it would have been so much easier just to, just to be honest and true. We've all done that, I suppose. I know I have. And yet what we see here is that turmoil 
that the, the tension, the pressure, the, all the problems that are caused in our lives through sin, and there's so many, but all of that is made right through faith in Jesus. Now, when I say made right, I don't mean that when you trust in Jesus, you'll never have any problems. That's not, but what I mean is that there's peace even in the midst of our problems, that there's peace in the midst of the chaos, that even in lives that are marked by the weight of our sin, the messiness of this world and, it, and the ravages of sin, we can find peace with God and peace with each other through faith in Jesus. In fact, the New Testament encourages us. I'll go a step further and say that the New Testament essentially commands us to pursue peace with each other, to pursue peace, knowing that that peace ultimately comes through being right with God, and that when we're right with God, now we have the ability to be right with others as well. And we'll never experience that perfectly, this side of heaven. But to be honest, there are so many of us that, that don't have any peace that live with so little peace. And I wonder if the reason is because we're still holding on to our sin. Much like David, before he was confronted by Nathan, we're holding on to that sin. We think we, we, we're trying to do sin management, image management. We're trying to, to make sure that everybody thinks of us a certain way. And we're trying to make sure that we, we put on the, just the right front. And, and it's, it's, it's tiring, isn't it? In fact, it's exhausting trying to pretend to be perfect all the time. When in reality, if we would confess our sin and live in the freedom, the forgiveness that are ours, we can begin to experience peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. Sin brings turmoil. Salvation brings peace. Fourth, we see sin brings emptiness. Salvation brings fulfillment. Emptiness, I think, especially is sort of encapsulated here with the idea, the idea of feeling cast away in verse 11 from the presence of God. The idea that David has felt distanced from God. There's, and, and so what is that distance, that, that, that lack of the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, what does that produce? It produces an emptiness. Now, to be clear, David has a, a little bit of a different, a little bit of a different reality that he's living with than what you and I live with. Because what we live with is that through faith in Christ, we are given God's Holy Spirit as a gift, as a guarantee marking our salvation. But in the time of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had not come in the same sense. Now, the same Holy Spirit that David speaks of here is the same Holy Spirit that you and I that we live with. It's the same Holy Spirit that indwells us through faith in Jesus, that empowers us, according to Romans, to live the godly life the way that we are called to live the, the, the godly life. Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 also tell us that. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to his disciples, John chapter 16, verse 7, so that Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I should go away, because unless I go, the helper won't come. And so Jesus even tells his disciples, that it's for your good that I would leave because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. But David lives on the other side of the cross, if you will, in a different reality, a different moment. And so when David has sinned and God has withdrawn his Holy Spirit, there very much is an emptiness, a void that's produced in David's life because he's, he's separated from God by his sin and his desire is to, is to be restored, is to be right. 
is to experience the fullness of the presence of God that comes through the, the indwelling spirit in our lives. There's nothing you can do if you've trusted in Jesus by faith. There's nothing that you can do to lose God's Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is given to you. That's a whole other theological thing. I've preached on that before, uh, the indwelling spirit and, and, and what it means to quench the spirit. And, and, and so that'll be something that we'll even probably come back around to as we continue our study this year. You can go backward in the archives of our sermons and you can find those things as we were preaching through Ephesians, as we worked our way through the book of Galatians as well. But the point that I want to make in this moment is just simply this, is that even though you may not lose the Holy Spirit, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can sin in such a way that God's not going to withdraw his spirit from you, but all you're going to experience from the spirit is, is, uh, is, is the, essentially, he's working on you. He's, he's prompting you. He's stirring you. He's moving in your heart to lead you to that point of confession, to lead you to that point where you would seek forgiveness, to lead you to the, the contrition and then the correction that come through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to seek to fill the, the, the emptiness in our lives. Well, we need to fill that emptiness. We need to fill that emptiness just through simple confession. And, and I say, we fill it. The truth is, God fills it. The Spirit fills that, that longing in our hearts as we trust in Him, which really leads to the next point, right? Sin brings empty. Or I guess that's the point we're on. Sin brings emptiness. The Spirit brings fulfillment. Sin brings emptiness. There's an emptiness that comes in our sin, but there's a, a fulfilling, a fulfillment that comes through the power, the work of the Holy Spirit in us so that we have peace and we're filled with His Holy Spirit. And then finally, we've seen this, that sin brings disillusionment. But salvation brings hope. When I did, if I were to describe this disillusionment, I would just say that when we live in sin, we become jaded. We become hardened by sin. We become cynical toward everything and, and everyone, it seems. And so we, we find no peace, no joy, no, no satisfaction in things. Have you, have you ever sensed that? Have you ever kind of wandered into that sense of cynicism, that jadedness even in your own heart? It's something that as Christians, we have to be on guard against because it happens. Because sin hardens us. Sin hardens our hearts against the work of the Lord. But when we trust in Christ, when we trust in him, when we live in the freedom, the forgiveness that are ours, when we have peace with God and peace with each other, when we experience the fulfillment that comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit, we have hope. We have hope. Now, there are some who would say that this hope is kind of hopeless, that this hope is kind of pointless and kind of meaningless, that it's just a bunch of, it's just a, a bunch of people who feel good because they're chasing after a feeling. I'm not talking about an emotion here. I'm not talking about a feeling. When I'm talking about hope, understand this, I'm not talking about a feeling. This isn't hope in the sense of the way that we so often think of the word, but I'm talking about here, I'm talking about a firm faith in a fixed future. And what I mean when I say that is we know Jesus is coming again and that Jesus will ultimately deal with all of the sin and the brokenness in our world when he returns and that someday every one of us will stand before him in judgment. And the only hope we have in that moment is that we have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin and that we have confessed him as Lord and Savior. 
And that produces within us a hope, an expectation, a longing for, and a confidence in the things that are come. Is a firm faith and a fixed future that we can trust in Jesus. We can have hope in tomorrow. We can hope in his salvation, not because of anything that's good in us, but because of what Jesus has done for us, what he did for us on the cross. Sin would lead us down this path of disillusionment, this path of cynicism. But we can have hope. We can, we can have even joy, as verse 12 describes it, as we trust in Jesus. Look at the hope that is expressed in the latter verses of this psalm. You may not fully understand this, but in verses 18 and 19, there is such a beautiful expression of David's hope here. When he writes, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. So Zion, that's the mountain, that's the, the, the place of the temple. That is the, the, the city of Jerusalem rests atop Zion. And so there's later on, there's sort of a... a, a belief that develops through all of this that sometimes is referred to as Zionism. But the whole idea is that God has chosen a, a special people and that he has given them a sacred promise and that he has even fixed a, a, fixed a location, a place upon which he would reveal and, and, and show them the truth of this. And so David writes, do good to Zion, that's the people of God, in your good pleasure. Zion, by the way, becomes represented in the New Testament times in a couple of beautiful ways. For one, Zion is a picture of the cross of Christ. It's a picture of the, the hill of Calvary where Jesus gave his life, but also it's a picture of the new Jerusalem, the coming restoration when Jesus returns and, and he brings the new heaven to dwell on earth. And it's the fulfillment of all this promise, everything that we're hoping in. This future that is promised to us, and David is pointing to that promise here. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Again, that's a sign of strength, the strength that comes through trusting in the Lord. And then finally, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your walls. The point that David is saying is this. Do you see that he's pointing toward the work of Jesus? He's pointing toward the coming work of Christ. He's saying, Lord, fulfill your word among us. Fulfill your promise. Don't let our sin stand in the way of what it is that you want to do, God, in raising up for us a way of salvation. Strengthen us in your salvation. Fix for us what we could never fix on our own, Lord. Then we will have something greater than burnt offerings and bulls to offer you. We will have our very lives. That's the hope that David points to in these final words here. That's the same hope that is fulfilled in Jesus. That we would turn to him in our sin that we might find forgiveness and salvation through faith in Jesus. And hear me on this because this is the most important point I'm going to make this morning. You don't have to fix your life up and then come to God in faith. You don't have to get everything together and, and, and do everything right and then bring a shiny version of yourself to the Lord. Instead, you come to him as you are and you let him transform you and make you new. You let him work from the inside out. You let his salvation bring freedom, forgiveness, peace, fulfillment, hope to your life as you trust in him. It's not a better version of you. It's something you could never achieve on your own in the first place. 
but that's freely given as a gift as you trust in Jesus by faith. Salvation from sin made available as we trust in Jesus. And this morning, I want to point us to Jesus and his hope and his salvation. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response, a time of invitation. And during that time of invitation, if you're ready today to surrender your life to Jesus, to trust him for the forgiveness of your sin, to surrender your life to him, then I want to encourage you, even as we stand together and we sing the song, that you would come. The song that we're going to sing this morning, we sing these words, Oh, come to the altar. There's a picture here of the altar. Did you see that language in those final verses? The altar was the place of sacrifice, the place where where the sacrifices were offered in order that they might find forgiveness and atonement. But the point is that we would come to the altar, that we would offer our lives, and that we would receive freedom and forgiveness. And so even as we sing that song this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus today, to find forgiveness through faith in him, that you would come. Brad and I will be here at the front. We would love nothing more than to pray with you and walk you through a prayer of surrender, that you would surrender your life to Jesus, that you would trust in him for your salvation, that you would be forgiven, offered freedom, peace, fulfillment, hope, as you find salvation through faith in Jesus. This is the hope that David sings about. It's the same hope that we're going to sing about this morning as we look to Jesus in faith. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And as we prepare for this moment, I want to just encourage you, as I'm preparing to lead us in a word of prayer, I want to encourage you just to prepare your heart and to ask yourself the simple question, have I trusted in Jesus by faith? Am I ready to trust in him? Am I hoping in him? If not, then as we stand to sing together in a moment, we pray that you would come. And so, Lord, this morning, as we come to you in this moment, we want to trust in you fully by faith. Set us free from the bondage of our sin. Set us free from the condemnation that comes. Set us free from the turmoil in our lives, Lord. Set us free from the emptiness, the disillusionment as we look to you for salvation. And all this we pray in your name. Amen.